We're going to pick up where we left off last week and continue on in, in the book of Job in our series, Sovereign Suffering. We've been in it for a while. Last Sunday, we focused on Job's amazing poem in uh, chapter 28, where Job, the battered patriarch, asked and answered a very important question, and that was, where is true wisdom? And we learned that, that true wisdom cannot be sought down here on earth because it doesn't exist here on earth. There's wisdom here, but not this true wisdom that Job was speaking about. We learned that true wisdom cannot be bought because its value exceeds all precious metals and stones and anything and everything that, that Job thought had value in his day, and I would say that applies to today. You couldn't exchange the stock exchange for true wisdom because it exceeds all value. We learned that uh, true wisdom, lastly, it just comes from above. It comes from God himself because he's the source of true wisdom. He is true wisdom. In fact, we talked about how in Scripture that Jesus is called the wisdom of God. And uh, we, we learned those things last week. Moving into the next section, I would simply say that I think we've all seen here, especially in chapter 1, the early part of chapter 1, that that prior to his suffering, Job had a, a very enriched and rewarding life, right? Greatest man of the East. I incredible blessings in, in a, a number of ways, just in, in having an awesome family and property and all these temporal blessings. Just He had uh, just an amazing, amazing um, rich and rewarding life, but it was all gone at this point. In the next section, Job kind of looks back on the joys from previous days. He remembers the, the blessings that he had and blessings that he and his family had enjoyed before this soul-numbing crisis began. And his mind reflects on past times when the sun beamed down on his life and, and everything just seemed to be so wonderful. Essentially, in chapter 29, we learned that he really longed to go back. He had a longing for the past. And I think it's, it's, it's really not uncommon in times of trouble for us to think back on how good the past was. If you're enduring some kind of trial or suffering or an illness or, or whatever it is, a lot of times our mind will just kind of go back. And we'll reflect on how things were, and we'll long for those days. Uh, I know for me, it's, it's uh, usually after I um, make some kind of dumb decision or something and do something ridiculous and go, man, I wish I could just rewind and go back to when I, 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 I wasn't making those kinds of decisions. We all in, in life have these times where, where we long for the past or want to go back, um, Rachel's always talking about how, you know, she misses high school and li would like to go back to that. Now, high school was bad for me because I looked like Daniel's son from the Karate Kid. I weighed a buck, two, and everyone picked on me. <laughs> so high school's not a time that I would want to go back to, but it's one that she kind of dreams, um, dreams of on occasion. And I think it's pretty common for us to do this, and that's what Job is doing. But I would say for Job... The, the trouble that he had with, with longing for the past and looking back, it caused him to be even more discontent with the present because that too can happen. Reflecting on the way things were can be kind of joyful in a moment, but it can make you kind of despise your present moment even more. And that's not healthy or right. I think Steve Lawson captures what Job was doing here, he, 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 what, it was, you know, what was happening with him. And he says, the past must be released if the present is to be experienced triumphantly. There's a lot of truth loaded into that statement. And sometimes our past hangs us up and keeps us from actually enjoying the Lord's blessings and even counting the Lord's blessings in these moments or living triumphantly over the present struggle. So it's kind of a double-edged sword. Rewinding the tape and going back can be good in some ways, but it can be very negative in other ways. It can cause us to really be discontent with what's going on. 
And some people just cannot leave their past behind. Their past dictates their present. You know the, the, the euphemism or the phrase, he's living in the past. Yes, it's not good to live in the past. And that's essentially what's happening. Job chapter uh, 29 and 30, those two chapters, they actually go together. I mean, the whole book goes together, but those two chapters really belong together. I just don't know how I would ever teach them in one sitting because they're big. And chapter 29 is, is the record of Job's remembrance of his blessed past. Chapter 30 is the record of Job's discontent with his depressing present situation. So 29, he's looking back and going, oh, man, I'd, I'd do anything to go back to that. And then in chapter 30, he's going, I hate now. That's what those two chapters symbolize. This morning, we're going to look at chapter 29. And uh, the title of this message is obviously Longing for the Past. Next Sunday, Lord willing, we will focus on chapter 30, and the title of that message will be Lamenting the Present, Crying Over the Present. Please take your Bibles and turn to Job 29. Probably already there. This will be a five-blessing sermon. They're points, but really they're blessings, because these are blessings that Job enjoyed that he wants back. Five blessings sermon. Uh, the text really is kind of laid out like a wish list. So we'll pick up where we left off. We'll look at that first blessing. Number one, Job's friendship with God. This is represented in verses 1 through 6. Job is remembering the time before his suffering when his friendship with God was intimate and sweet. We'll pick it up in verses 1 to 4 first, and it says this, And Job again took up his discourse and said, Oh, that I were as in the months of old, as in the days when God watched over me, when his lamp shone upon my head, and his light, and by his light I walked through darkness, as I was in my prime, when the friendship of God was upon my tent." Following his words on true wisdom in chapter 28, Job again took up his discourse. And this really here in, in verse 1, it really kind of sets the stage and it kind of begins Job's final summation. He's only going to speak for a couple more chapters. And then he's pretty much quiet toward all the way to the end. But this is kind of setting the stage for his final summation in this chapter, the next chapter. And it's a look to the past, to the times when his life was prosperous and, and free of all that travail and, and loss and pain. And he recalled how God's presence had permeated his life before his painful ordeal began. How he longed for the months of old, you know, yesterday or yesteryear, when God watched over his life and, and shined his divine lamp upon his head and, and guided him with divine light as he walked through the darkness of this fallen, depraved world. This is what he's longing for. I want to go back to those days when our friendship was tight and intimate and, and we walked together and you led me by your light, is what he's saying. Job calls this period in his life his prime because it represents the absolute best season of his life. When was your prime? When was your prime? Was it back in high school when you could run the mile in under 20 minutes? Huh? For some of us guys, not this guy in particular because my wife's in the other room, for some of us guys, we think our prime was in college when, when we could, you know, just ladies were interested in us and we could pretty much date whomever we wanted, right? Especially at Christian college. It's a joke, but some, some guys consider that a time in their life, they were in their prime when they could get girls. Now, that's not a Christian way of thinking, but it is a reality. When I was growing up, my parents very foolishly let me watch Married with Children. Yeah, in Al Bundy's prime, 
was back in 1966 at Polk High School when he scored four touchdowns in a single game. And then he married Peg. When was your prime? Was it in the early years of your walk with Christ when you were full of holy zeal and courage to share the gospel with anyone and everyone? Remember those early years or those early days when, when God first brought you into his kingdom, into his family? He regenerated you and made you a new person and you had all that holy zeal. I remember throwing out like 300 DVDs. When I got converted, I went into my... My, my, my TV cabinet and saw Pulp Fiction in there and said, this is not for Christians. Threw everything away, only to learn that my sister-in-law, Carol, had dug them all out of the trash. She had been a Christian for 20 years at that point. She's all, I have liberty. I was like, you are a pagan sinner. When was your prime? I hope that your prime was during some point in your walk with Christ. And I think sadly for a great many, it, it, it wasn't. It was, it was back in, I was going to say junior high. That's nobody's prime. <laughs> Amen? I was a junior high pastor for years. Trust me, that is no one's prime. They think it's their prime, but that is not their prime. When was your prime? Job's prime was, as he explains, when, when the friendship of God was upon his tent. What is his tent? It's his household. It's his life. It's, it's everything that he is. His tent represents his entire life. That's his prime. Can we say the same thing? When calamity struck and the household and life of Job was essentially blown apart... Job felt like, well, I guess my prime has ended, but more specifically, it feels as if his friendship with God was gone. How tragic. See, it's those moments when we experience calamity and loss that are to improve our friendship with God because we draw unto him and rely on him more, but not in Job's case. Why? Because Job measured his friendship with God, the quality of it or the depth of it, by his temporal blessings. The more he had, the more friendly he thought God was being toward him. That's sad. Of course, life is full of, of gains and losses, and, and, and if that's the way that we're going to judge our relationship or friendship with God, then it's going to be all over the map, right? It's going to be as stable as our stock market. Or crypto, dumb doge. He measured the quality and depth of his relationship, his friendship with God by his temporal blessings. When Job had, when Job had, let's just put it this way, when Job had a good income, when he had a decent home with a three-donkey garage, when he had successful children, when he had no major illnesses or losses, he thought God was being extra friendly toward him. Boy, I must be in the good favor of God because he, he must really consider me his friend because look at all these great things that he's given me as if that's what a, constitutes a friendship is, is just giving and taking. I suppose in this world that is what constitutes a great many friendships and marriages. How tragic. But that's the way he thought. And yet when... These temporal blessings of his were removed. What did he think? The exact opposite, that God was being unfriendly toward him. There must be something wrong with our relationship, he's thinking. When his life was enjoyable, he thought his friendship with God was strong. When his life was unenjoyable, he thought his friendship with God was strained. What Job didn't understand is a simple truth, and that is that God causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. Matthew 5.45. Why is that true? Because is it because God is friends with everyone? He's just everyone's friend and he just causes the rain to fall on all his friends? Heavens no, that's a ridiculous idea. That's silly. It's because God is gracious. That is part of God's providence to cause the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. If you know anything about the Bible, you know that God does not consider the unjust his friends. Not at all. 
He actually hates the wicked. Psalm 11.5, today in the church, you, you're always hearing about how God loves everyone. Well, there's, sad, sad to say, but there are people that he absolutely despises, the wicked, those who sin against him all the time and, and inflict harm on others, especially on his own people. Scripture has some hard truths. He does not consider the unjust his friends. He despises the wicked, and yet he causes the rain to fall on them because he's gracious. In fact, in terms of judgment, in Genesis 6, he caused a lot of rain to fall on the wicked, didn't he? For 40 days and 40 nights until they were no more when he reset the world. I would just simply say to you that it is incredibly unwise to measure our friendship with God by our temporal blessings. That is a, a, a very foolish thing to do. And this is what Job was doing. If God's child has many temporal blessings, God loves that child, undoubtedly. And if another child has very few temporal blessings, guess what? God loves that child too, undoubtedly. God does not love one of his children more than another. There is no partiality in God, Romans 2.11. If God gives one of his children more temporal blessings than another, it could be a matter of stewardship because God tends to give one more things to manage than another if that one's a good steward. But we must remember that those to whom he gives more to, he expects more. So be careful what you wish for. If he gives you more temporal blessings, he expects you to do a, a, a bang-up job in managing those things for his glory. If he gives you very little, he loves you just the same, but he expects less. It's the way it works, Luke 12, 48b must understand that God loves all his children, all believers, with the most holy, perfect, satisfying love, and he never changes his mind or heart toward us, never. His love is immutable just as he is immutable. That means unchanging. He may, of course, change the direction of our lives, but he will never change his love for his people. Never, ever, ever. Now, some folks like to say things like there is Nothing God cannot do. They are wrong. There are many things God cannot do. He cannot lie, Hebrews 6.18. He cannot tolerate sin, Isaiah 59.1 and 2. He cannot change his love for his people, Jeremiah 31.3. What does it say? He loves his children with an everlasting love. What does the word everlasting mean? Perpetual, on and on and on with no pauses, no pauses. We must understand that our circumstances have nothing to do with it. Our temporal blessings have nothing to do with it. If our life is plentiful, God's love is steadfast. If our life is barren, God's love is steadfast. If our life is hard, God's love is abounding. If our life is easy, God's love is abounding. You understand what I'm saying this morning? There is absolutely no variation or shadow of change with God, James 1.17. Apply that to his love for you. We must understand that God either loves or despises. There's no in-between. God is not a liker. He does not like. He either loves with the full strength of his being or despises with the full strength of his being. It's a hard truth, but it's true. He loved Jacob, who represents the covenant of grace in all believers, and yet he hated Esau, who represents the reprobate and the wicked. Romans 9.13, love or hate? No in-between. If you are his, he loves you with a pure, perpetual love. If you are not, repent because you are under his wrath. We know that Job's circumstances had changed. And now we know that God's love for him had never changed. 
and neither did their friendship. The friendship that, that Job enjoyed with God, it, yeah, it certainly was impacted by all his travail and all that, but it hadn't changed. Not on God's end. God not only saw Job as a friend, but God chose to use Job to defend, uh, to defend, pardon me, to defend the friendship the Lord has with all of his children. Satan said that our friendship with God, our relationship with God is based on temporal blessings. And if these things are removed, then what would happen? Job would immediately curse God and the friendship would end. That was the challenge of chapter 1, verses 9 to 11. Job's only the way he is toward you, God, because you give him a lot of stuff. If I take those things away, your friendship's over. That's the challenge of Satan in this book. But it didn't happen, did it? What happened after Satan removed everything from Job, his, his wealth, family, and health? What happened when all those things went? Job did some cursing, but he didn't curse God he cursed his birth. That's all of chapter 3. Satan's idea and, and thought and, and plan and strategy did not work. Now, Job may have made the mistake of measuring his friendship with God by what he had or didn't have, but he was still the real deal. He was still a true believer, a true child of God. He loved the blesser more than his blessings we know that to be true he didn't curse the blesser cursed himself and god knew that all of this would happen with job and that is why the almighty chose him for this test amen because god knows all things and all outcomes must also understand before we move into the next set of verses that there are people in churches today who do the exact same thing they do. They measure their relationship with God by what they have or don't have. And I'm not picking on Jewish people by any means, but this is a very Jewish thought. This is how the, the Jews thought in, 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 in I, it's hard to say Abraham's day because it was a, a nation being birthed, but easily in the days of Jesus, easily in the days of King David and Solomon and them, this is a Jewish line of thinking here that if I have a lot, God is, is, he really loves me. If I don't, I must be under his curse. They still think that way today, those who are outside of Christ. But this is a popular mentality in churches today. People measure the quality or their relationship as a whole by what they have or don't have. And if God were to remove some of their temporal blessings, they would end up just like Job, scratching their heads, trying to figure out why God is being less friendly toward them, or worse, why God doesn't love them anymore. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about because you came out of the charismatic movement, and not just the charismatic movement, but the health and wealth part, where everything is weighed and measured by your blessings. Of course, in, in that movement, they usually tie everything to faith. If you have more faith, you'll have more stuff. The reason why you don't have more stuff is because you have very little faith, as if faith were something that you possess and exercise. Forget about the author and perfecter of it and the fact that it's given as a gift, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. You know what I'm talking about here, and some of you, have not grown up in the charismatic movement, but and yet you still measure your relationship with God based on either your performance, and when you're performing well, you think he's really friendly toward you, and when you don't perform well, you don't think he's very happy with you, or you do it by your possessions or lack thereof. You do the same thing in your own way without a tinge of the charismania. At what point are we going to start to believe the gospel? At what point do we... Do we relinquish and, 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 and jettison these poisonous worldly ideas and, 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 and dive full deep into the gospel, which is the work of Christ on our behalf despite how wicked and sinful we are? When are we going to believe the gospel? Oh, I believe the gospel. Well, not if you're measuring your friendship with God based on what you have or don't have. You don't understand an aspect of the gospel. You don't understand the work of Christ on your behalf. 
because you're in an earning mode with the God you cannot earn from, with the God who freely gives gifts, the gifts of faith, the gifts of repentance, the gift of eternal life, Romans 6.23. Every gift that comes down from him is good and is a gift of mercy and grace. You've done nothing but sin. That's all you've done. And he has chosen to pardon you in Christ. That's the gospel. It was his choice. When are we going to believe it? Verses 5 and 6, continuing on, he says, When the Almighty was yet with me, when my children were all around me, when my steps were washed with butter and the rock poured out for me streams of oil. Job is just continuing to describe his prime. During that glorious season of his life when the Almighty was with him, you know, he could really sense the presence of the all-powerful God in his life and in his family, especially when his, his children, children were around. And, and the funny thing about that is he must have had really good kids because there's been times where I'm around my kids and I feel as if God doesn't exist at all. Why are they doing this, Lord? Why have you sent me devils? They're not devils. They're a blessing, fool. You're right. And this is, this is Job's sentiment, his remembrance here. Man, I, I just love the friendship. I love the fellowship that we had when, when, when you were walking with me, Almighty. The Almighty was walking with me when my kids were around and, and all these things. That's, that's what he's doing. He's reminiscing on this. But now Job feels as if God was gone. And the friendship had maybe come to an end because God had... You know, like Elvis left the building. And we have to ask the question, did God actually withdraw his presence from Job? No, that is also something else God cannot do. How can the God who is omnipresent everywhere all the time withdraw his presence from anywhere? He can't. He can't cease to be in one place. He's everywhere at all times. He is everywhere at all times. He is in heaven right now on his eternal throne. And he is also here right now on earth. In fact, his glory fills the whole earth. Numbers 14, 21, Isaiah 6, 3. He is in this body of believers. He is in this room. God cannot cease to be present in all places at all times. That's an impossibility for him. He can, however, choose to manifest his already here presence in unique ways. Think of the burning bush, Exodus 3.2. Think of the pillar of smoke by day and the pillar of fire by night, Exodus 13.21. Think of the fourth man in Nebuchadnezzar's fiery furnace, Daniel 3.25. That is God who was already there, manifesting his presence in a unique way. The Bible also speaks of God hiding his face. In Psalm 30, verse 7, David cried out, Lord, when you favored me, you made my royal mountain stand firm, but when you hid your face, I was dismayed. Common belief is that when... Now, listen carefully to me here. The common belief is that when God's child engages in sinful behavior, God hides his face from that child. Why? Because his eyes are too pure to look upon evil, Habakkuk 1.13. That's one passage that these folks believe this. It's one that they cite. When I sin, even when I'm driving and there's an irritating driver in front of me and I think something or say something to myself or out loud, all of a sudden... I, I have sinned against that person in front of me, even though they're a terrible driver. And, and God witnesses that. And now he has to turn his face from me because he can't be exposed to any kind of sinful behavior. That's the mentality. That's the thinking. My goodness, he sent Jesus into a sinful world. Who is God? How does that work? Hmm. Now, there are many problems with this interpretation, and it's very common 
First, God cannot hide his face because he has no face to hide. He has no physical body with a face or eyes. He is spirit, John 4, 24. Do we understand this? You're thinking, well, God does have a face, the face of Christ. Yes, but that's not what we're talking about right now. Secondly, God is, as we've already said, we've already established, He is omnipresent. He is everywhere all the time. He cannot cease to be in all places, nor can He cease to witness what is happening. Third, God has no literal face and eyes, but He can somehow see. And yes, He is perfectly pure, as the Habakkuk text says. But we must understand that His purity does not prohibit Him from seeing sin. Proverbs 15.3 says, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. If God is keeping watch on the evil, then He is certainly witnessing the evil deeds that the evil commit. If God can't look upon evil because His eyes are too pure, how, how could He record and judge evil? How could He... Turn the sins of evil people back on them. Psalm 94, verse 23. If he can't witness the sin, how can he judge sin later? God's pure eyes and hidden face are examples of anthropomorphic language, human terms that we see in Scripture that are meant to help readers and listeners understand the nature and person of God. To say that God has a face is to help us to be able to connect to him but he doesn't have a literal face these anthropomorphic terms that we see in scripture are meant to help us comprehend God he is like us or better yet we are like him we are his image bearers in other words he has senses we have senses he has morals we have immorality when Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit and sinned, God was there in the garden. He actually witnessed their fall. Genesis 3, 8. What was he doing? He was walking in the cool of the garden. He was there when they sinned. He wasn't on some remote planet or a distant heaven that, that, isn't, is, that is inaccessible, and he was up there, and then all of a sudden he had to come down and do an investigation like Poirot. Yeah, I like Perot. I like Agatha Christie. I do. It's good stuff. What did they do? What did God witness them doing? They immediately covered their naked bodies with fig leaves, and they hid in the bushes, Genesis 3, 7, and 10. They were trying to escape God's presence because of shame and guilt. They knew he was there. They were trying to hide from him. What am I saying to you? What I'm saying to you is that sin distorts our perception of God, our understanding of God, our experience with God. That's exactly what happened in Genesis 3. The sweet fellowship they enjoyed had become distorted and maligned and twisted on their end. We are the hiders not God. If, if his wonderful, as the song says, his wonderful face, if it seems hidden, the problem is on our end, not on God's end. Sin is causing this. God cannot hide his face. He does not have a face. He cannot hide himself. He is omnipresent. He is there. He is here. Now, in Job's case, it wasn't a sin issue or shame or guilt that made the Almighty seem hidden or absent. It was intense suffering that can have the exact same effect. Intense suffering can distort our perception and cause us to think that God is hidden, absent, or even mad at us. After being brutally judged by Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar for a couple months, Job started to believe that the absence of his temporal blessings signified the absence of the Almighty. The Puritan Richard Sibbs wrote, 
Many who should enjoy God above all things act as if there were no God in heaven when their outward comforts are taken from them. That's exactly what Job was experiencing. His outward comforts, his temporal blessings had been taken, and he thought, I guess God's not in heaven. I guess he's not my friend. I don't know where he is. I don't even know if he's out there anymore. I keep calling to him. But Job was wrong. God was there the whole time. He is omnipresent. Job also reflects and remembers how his steps were washed with butter and the rock poured out for him streams of oil. This hyperbolic expression suggested God's overflowing blessings and prosperity in Job's life. What is happening here? Job desperately wants to return to the time before his suffering when his friendship with God was intimate and sweet and he enjoyed all of the blessings associated with that closeness with God. I want to go back. That is what he's saying. Number two, Job's formidable reputation. We see this in verses 7 to 11. Job remembers the time before his suffering when he had a formidable, or a great word for formidable, is awesome, when he had an awesome reputation among the people in his community, in us. We'll start in verses 7 to 10. He says, when I went out to the gate of the city, when I prepared my seat in the square, the young men saw me and withdrew, and the aged rose and stood. The princes refrained from talking and laid their hand over their mouth. The voice of the nobles was hushed, and their tongues stuck to the roof of their mouth. Stop there. Job is telling us that he had a seat on the city council. And those city councils in antiquity used to meet near the entrances or main gates of those main cities. When you walked in through the main gate, there would be a public square and your city council of that city would meet somewhere in that area. They would have stone carved out seats or something there where the leaders and rulers of the city, the council members, could sit. It was right by the gate. And that was strategic because that's when people are coming and going all the time. And when you come into the city, you might have questions about that city, right? If you're a guest, you could go over and talk to the council. And they would tell you, get out of this place. It used to be good back in the day. Or they could tell you it's a wonderful place. There's places for rent over here in this area. $1,500 a month for a two-bedroom, one-bath apartment. It was common for these ancient cities, city councils, to hold meetings near the gate. Abraham's nephew, Lot, may have been a council member in Sodom. It's kind of hard to believe, but I don't think Sodom was always a bad city. But he was a council member there at one time because he could be found always sitting at the gate of Sodom. What are we being told in Genesis 19:1 That he was a member of the council. And in fact, he was basically the only righteous man in the whole city. And Job went out to the gate of Uz and prepared his seat among the other council members. What happened? The young, aspiring politicians and leaders would withdraw out of respect for him. They would see him coming and they would get up and leave. Not out of fear, but out of respect. They would literally leave the town square. And it says those who were aged, the older council members and politicians would do what? They would rise from their seats and stand, why? To honor Job as he entered the council. Wow. If princes, it says, if princes were present, what would they do? Refrain from talking and lay their hand over their mouth. If nobles were present, these high-ranking leaders would hush their voices and their tongues would stick to the roofs of their mouths as they sat there in awe, listening to Job render wise verdicts. This is how he was respected and honored in us. He had an incredible reputation there. Verse 11, he continues, When the ear heard, it called me blessed, and when the eye saw, it approved. Job was speaking of the general populace here. Even the regular Uzites knew 
who Job was, and they respected him as well. When they heard his name or learned about something he was doing in the community, they called him blessed. You know, he was like that guy that just uh, is like King Midas. Everything he touches turns to gold. There's some people in the church that are like that. They're just blessed, and, and God works through them. And, and when they apply themselves, they're, they're just incredible blessing that pours forth. And that's the way that people saw Job in us. Man, whatever that guy does, and when he speaks, I just sit there. And when these same townspeople saw his deeds and the projects that he was working on, it says their eyes approved. In other words, they looked on Job and his work with favor. It's an understatement to say that Job had a formidable reputation in us. The young politicians respected him. The aged council members respected him. Royalty, the princes respected him. The nobles respected him. And the average citizens respected him. Job was the most respected person in town. And I would venture to say he was the most respected and honored person throughout all of Edom, his home territory. He was, as it says in Job 1.3, the greatest of all the people of the East. That includes princes. He was even greater than them. How could he be greater than princes? He was. And yet all his greatness had been reduced to rubble in just a few short days. When calamity struck, he not only lost his great wealth, his, his wonderful family, and his terrific health, he also lost his formidable reputation. And of course, in the previous point or blessing he thinks that he lost his friendship with God in this scenario here the entire community when he got struck with the suffering and the boils and everything else when he lost it all everything the entire community had turned on him you would think that they would have rallied around him but the whole community turned on him he lost all respect in us. And I have a theory. I think this was the work of his three friends. I do. And I don't think they went around gossiping about him or slandering him. I don't think that was the case. If you go back and reread their speeches, how did they paint him? They painted him as a horribly unjust business person, as a wicked man who was under the divine judgment of God. And I believe the people of us believed them not to mention his appearance and all the losses signified that God had forsaken him. That was a common belief in that day. What is Job saying here? He desperately wants to return to the time before his suffering when he had a formidable reputation among the people in his community. And I think that Job longed to have that back, not just because that reputation benefited him, but... Every true believer's reputation also represents their Redeemer. How I act impacts the reputation of Christ. And so I think he wanted it back for that as well. God, I'm your man, and, and look, at, look at me, and look at what I look like, and look at how people are perceiving this. I certainly hope they're not thinking bad things about you. That could have been going through his mind. Now we have to ask the question, what did Job do in the past to garner such respect in us, right? Because respect is what? Earned. People today demand it no matter what when they've done nothing to earn it. Stick to the original plan. May people earn it before you. Except in the church, you have to respect your elders. <laughs> but if they do something to break the trust, hold them accountable. We don't live in a time where respect is earned. It's demanded. Many people that are not worthy of respect today are demanding it. He wants to go back, but what did he do to garner such respect? Well, we've got to move to the third blessing. Number three, Job's faithful ministry. This is what he describes in verses 20 to 12 to 20. Job remembers the time before his suffering when, when he had a fruitful ministry. And he lists nine things he did in his prime before the calamity took him out. And these are going to be quick. A, 
He helped the poor. We see this in verse 12a. Job says, because I delivered the poor who cried out for help. Job was very active in us, trying to be a blessing to those who did not have. He provided for them in ways. B, he helped orphans. We see this in verse 12b. He says, and the fatherless who had none to help him. He helped orphans. C, he helped the hungry. Verse 13a, he says, the blessing of him who was about to perish came upon me. He's talking about those who were starving to death. There were people who had been banished to the outskirts of town or right outside of the city wall who would not be provided for, and they would literally starve to death out there. They were city outcasts. It seems to me that Job would find out who they are and try to go out there and render aid as a physician. He wasn't a physician, but he would act like one, or he would at least go out there and try to put food in their belly. D, he helped widows, verse 13b. He says, and I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. How do you cause a widow's heart to sing for joy? By meeting her needs, by stepping in and helping her. She has lost her husband. That's a tragedy. That hurts. We have people here who know how that feels. And in the midst of their mourning, Job, as a, as a godly Christian man, would come and help and cause their hearts to sing for joy. E. He pursued justice, verse 14. I put on righteousness and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. What did it mean for him to pursue justice? Are we talking about social justice? No, we're talking about biblical justice. Rendering to those what they deserve. That is biblical justice. If someone should have had a meal, he rendered justice by giving them a meal. If a wicked person required some kind of justice, he would somehow give it to them by holding them accountable. There's a difference between today's social justice and biblical justice. Today, social justice wants to give people things they don't deserve. That's not biblical justice. Biblical justice, you give people exactly what they have earned, exactly what they deserve. If they have done good, you justly give them good. If they have done evil, you justly give them evil. Uh, you return evil on them. You don't commit evil against them, but you hold them accountable. And he pursued justice wherever he went. F, Job helped those with disabilities. I love this one, verse 15. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. Wow. There were blind people in us who couldn't get around, and he would come over and be their eyes and help them across the street, help them grocery shop, do whatever. There were people who could not walk, and he would run errands for them and do things for them. This is the, this is the greatest man in the East, and here he is doing these things. It's just incredible. Gee, he provided for those in need. That's just a summation of what he was doing, but it's expressed in 16a. I was a father to the needy. What do fathers, what are they supposed to do? Provide for their needy children. He's saying, I was like a father to those who had needs. I met the needs. H, he helped strangers with their problems, verse 16b. And I searched out the cause of him whom I did not know. If Job learned about someone that he didn't know that was having some kind of a problem in a business dealing or any kind of situation, he would literally, if he learned about it, he wouldn't just say, well, that's terrible, I'll add it to our prayer list. He would go and try to seek justice for them or to try to solve the problem for them or to hold whoever was treating them improperly accountable. Remember, he was just. Job not only, he, he, he not only kept himself from being taken advantage of, but he wouldn't let the, the wealthy and the elites take advantage of those who did not have much. And then I, he rescued victims from oppression. Verse 17, I broke the fangs of the unrighteous and made him drop his prey from his teeth. This is poetry. And what a beautiful statement. You have the unrighteous who are like lions who go around trying to consume the righteous, or those who are innocent and who can't take care of their own needs in these things. And, and he would hold them accountable so much so that they would drop their prey. 
as an animal drops its prey. Job had a fruitful ministry before calamity struck. It was thriving. This is what earned him all that honor, all that favor, all that respect in us. Job wasn't the kind of person like today that goes around demanding respect. His actions had garnered and earned him respect in his community. His words and his deeds had secured it for him. He helped people. He was the Mother Teresa of his day, but male and Protestant. People relied on him. The elites needed his wisdom. The downtrodden needed his help and resources. And he gave to all freely, but now all of that was gone. Instead of thriving, he was surviving, and I would say barely. What is he saying? He desperately wants to return to the time before his suffering when he had a fruitful, thriving ministry. Let's move to the fourth blessing. Number four, Job's fantastic future, verses 18 to 20. Job remembers the time before his suffering when he really thought he had a fantastic future. Verse 18 Then I thought, I shall die in my nest, and I shall multiply my days as the sand. Job, at that time during his prime, literally thought he would just die in his nest. His nest represents his home, and he thought he would do it at a ripe old age. He thought his days would be multiplied like grains of sand on a beach. Good, How many days is that? He's saying, I I thought I would live a really, really long and fruitful life. Now, what he didn't understand, because he thought he was dying, but what he didn't understand is that he wasn't actually dying. He thought he was, but he wasn't dying. And he couldn't die during this trial because God had restricted Satan from killing him, Job 2.6. But he thought he was dying because his health was depleting and he'd lost everything, thought the hand of God was against him. He certainly felt like he was dying, and I would say he wanted to die, did he not? At some point, he was saying things like, just kill me now. End my pain, end my suffering. And yet God had different plans, didn't he? Verse 19, my roots spread out to the waters with the dew, with the dew all night on my branches. Job pictures himself here as a healthy tree that had spread its roots and tapped into a source of life-giving sustenance, waters. The waters nourished his roots by day and the dew nourished his branches by night. This metaphor represented the abundant future he once anticipated would be his to enjoy. Verse 20, my my glory fresh with me and my bow ever new in my hand. Job believed he would be vibrant and strong to the end of his life. The bow, a symbol of his strength, was ever new in his hand. One time Job rested comfortably in his position and power. But all that was gone now. His bow and his strength had been taken. His glory vanished with his wealth, family, and health. His future was no longer bright like he thought it would be. What is he saying? He desperately wants to return to the time before his suffering when he had a fantastic future. Now let's move to the fifth and final blessing. Number five, Job's favor among men. He has, in a sense, touched on this, but he really goes all out here. Verses 21 to 25, we pick up in verses 21 to 23. He describes it like this. Men listened to me and waited and kept silent for my counsel. After I spoke, they did not speak again, and my word dropped on them or dropped upon them. I love that. It's like a bomb. They waited for me as for the rain, and they opened their mouths as for the spring rain. Job describes the favor he once enjoyed as men listening to him expectantly. This was in contrast to the disrespect shown to him by his three friends, right? They they were very short-tempered with him. They didn't sit there anticipating what he would say. They wanted to interrupt all the time and interject. There was a time when, when the leaders in us, they would literally hang on Job's every word, 
Others waited in silence for Job to speak, giving proper homage and, and, uh, to the successful patriarch because that's what he was. He was a patriarch. Job's counsel, it says here, was so brilliant that there was no need for anyone to speak again after he spoke. Ah, well, Job has spoken and said exactly what we need to do. I guess the meeting's adjourned. Hear ye, hear ye. When his word dropped upon them, they were satisfied and refrained from adding their own thoughts and words. Men, it says, waited for Job to speak like a farmer waits for the rains. And when Job spoke, they opened their mouths in awe like a farmer opens his mouth to let the cool spring rain fall on his tongue. How many of you have gone outside and went, when it starts to rain? This is what he's describing through his poetry. Verses 24 and 25. He says, I smiled on them when they had no confidence, and the light of my face they did not cast down. Last verse, I chose their way and sat as chief. And I lived like a king among his troops, like one who comforts mourners. Even Job's smile was an encouragement to others when they had no confidence. Man, you could walk up to Job after having a terrible day and your face is just falling off and your countenance is down and you're, you're just ill with the troubles of the day and he would give you a smile and that would perk you right up. He loomed so large in the eyes, in the people's eyes, that they could scarcely believe he would even smile at them. Can you believe Job smiled at me? He acknowledged me. Everyone longed for Job's approval. The light of his countenance was precious to them as they saw in him, they actually saw him as a source of stability. He was a rock of security and strength to those around him. He gave counsel to others, acting as their chief. And what did they do? They followed his direction explicitly. They did exactly what he counseled them on because his counsel was sound and solid. It says, Job, or Job is saying, I spoke with authority, he, like as if he had the authority of a king among his troops. He, he gave orders and instructions, like a king would. And yet, he was able to lower himself and comfort mourners. You see that there. Wow. But all of that was gone. All of it. The flames of affliction had consumed Job's favor in us along with everything else. It was all gone. Gone. What is he saying? He desperately wants to return to the time before his suffering when he had favor among men. When they would listen to him and take his counsel. And now they wouldn't even, they cursed him now. We'll, we'll, we'll look at how they responded to him in the next chapter. It's the antithesis, the exact opposite of everything that he's describing here. That's why he wants to go back. Closing, listen carefully. What should we do if the flames of affliction arise and consume our temporal blessings? Really, if the flames of affliction consume anything, but the emphasis in the text in chapter 29 is on the things that he had, including his own children, but how should we respond if the flames of affliction arise in our lives and consume the things that we hold so dear? Should we long for the past and put together a wish list like Job? No. No. There is no sense in looking back unless we intend to reflect on God's faithfulness so that we can face present difficulties with confidence and hope. That is not what Job was doing. But if we're going to look back, we're only doing it to remember all the ways that God showed up and provided so that we can have confidence and hope in our present moment. You know what, God? I remember how you were two years ago. And I remember how you showed up 
and how you delivered me, and I'm, I'm trusting that you can do that again. That's a good thing to do. You know, you know, the Israelites were commanded many times as they were moving throughout the promised land or toward it to set up memorials. Why were those memorials there? So they could remember God's power and faithfulness. That's the only reason why we should look back. Only if we're doing that, but that's not what he's doing. No, we don't, we don't long for the past. We don't, we don't say what he's saying. I want to go back to my prime your prime can be any station in life. What matters is your perspective and how you see God and how you understand God. That's what will determine whether it's prime or not. We don't want to do what Job did here. Here's what we need to do. We need to remember that God always loves us and calls us his friends. Always. Always. Romans 8, 39 or 38 to 39, what does it say? Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to do what? Separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. He loves you forever. If you've lost, it's not because he doesn't love you anymore. It's not because the friendship is strained. You're still his friend. If you're in Christ, you are an eternal friend of God. Nothing will ever change that. And we've all suffered loss, and we've all wondered where God is in the midst of it. He is there with us. He is here with us. He is our friend. He loves us. So the first thing we must remember is that he loves us and calls us his friends if we are in Christ. Indeed, he does that. We need to remember that our reputation is important, but it's not as important as Christ's reputation. If people have a low view of us, so be it. But may, it, may we never cause them to have a low view of Christ because we are failing to live out our high calling, Ephesians 4.1. Let men despise us, but may they never despise our Savior because of our behavior. Amen? And if you live out the Christian faith the way that you're supposed to, men will despise you. Christ is a stumbling block to those who are perishing. If you have Christ, men will hate you. So be okay with that. Be okay with that. We need to remember that we can still have a fruitful ministry in the midst of suffering if we will remain open and humble and, 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 and be ready and willing to accept any new opportunities that God might bring to us during that time. Job made the mistake, even though he was a heap of a mess, he made the mistake of thinking his ministry was over. He could have had a ministry during that time. I don't know who he would have ministered to. Probably lepers. Amen. It's totally appropriate for ex-drug addict Christians to minister to current drug addicts. If you look like a leper, minister to lepers. You can have a ministry at any time unless you're literally on your deathbed. And even if that moment, if you can squeak out a sentence, you can say, Jesus forgives sinners. You can have a fruitful ministry if you're humble and open to new opportunities. What tends to happen is we have a type of ministry that we're doing and then that gets wiped out and then we want to return to that and instead of accepting and even pondering new opportunities that God might be bringing our way. We need to remember that we can still have a fruitful ministry. We need to remember that we still have a fantastic future. The present for a Christian does not determine their future. The past doesn't determine our future. Our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us what? An eternal weight of glory that far outweighs them all. 2 Corinthians 4.17 If we are in Christ, we have a glorious future. We have a fantastic future. It doesn't matter what's happening right now. It doesn't matter what happens tomorrow. It doesn't matter what happened last year or five years ago. Our future is secure. We just sang it. 
My future secure. We have a fantastic future. And yet somehow suffering clouds that up. And lastly, we need to remember that favor among men is nice, but it is not necessary. And we will always, always, always have the favor of our Heavenly Father. Always. My sin doesn't cause me to lose favor with Him. It causes my view of Him to be distorted. But He is still there and still favors me and still loves me. And of course He will discipline me because that's what good loving fathers do. But I will always have His favor. Which of you parents would ever forfeit or take away your favor from your child. You will never do that. And God, a million billion times over, you will never do that. Even when your child lets you down, they don't lose your favor. You love that child. You want what's best for that child. How could our Heavenly Father be any less than us? He is more than us. He will always have His favor. Always. Those are the things that we need to remember during these times. Amen?